Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in the negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by serial entrepreneur Dan Reich, who has built and sold three businesses, most recently Tula, which he grew to over $150 million before selling it in 2022. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the podcast, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map, and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. Also, just a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to Built to Sell Radio, to do so wherever you listen to your podcast, you can also watch the full episode over at our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. Now, as you're going to hear at the end of today's episode between Dan and John, as a trophy to commemorate his win, instead of buying a fancy beach house or supercar, Dan chose to donate his money to a cause close to his and his family's heart. Now, I have found a wonderful article that he wrote, which details more why, the speech he gave, the commitment that he made, which I think you'll really enjoy. And I have linked it in our show notes section over at Built to Sell. Now, as you're listening to today's episode with Dan, there's a few things I want you to look out for. One is how to uncover fresh opportunities in stagnant markets, how to safeguard your idea from corporate giants, how to employ creative strategies to finance your startup, how to choose an acquirer that aligns with your company's vision, 
how to understand the dual role partners play in shaping your brand's value, and how to grasp the potential downsides of excessive growth when exiting your business. Here to share his full story of how he sold Tula in 2022 is Dan Reich. Enjoy. Dan Reich, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me about Tula. How did this company come about? Tula was completely an accident. I never thought I'd end up in beauty or skincare growing up, but sure enough, it happened. The backstory for Tula was, I think I I need to rewind the clock to give you context, but maybe a decade ago, I had a software company called Spinback that helped online brands and retailers measure how much money they made from social media and Facebook. At a time when every company in the world knew Facebook was important and wanted likes, but had no idea what that meant for revenue. So the company at Spinback helped them measure that revenue and connect the dots. So a lot of the companies we worked with and customers were brands and retailers like Godiva Chocolate, L'Occitane, QVC, um, some of the original direct-to-consumer companies like Bonobos and so on. So I got a chance to see what worked and what didn't in terms of what we now call influencer marketing and social media marketing. And uh, we ended up selling that company or merging that company with another business called Buddy Media, which we then sold to Salesforce. And after that time, I, I, I quit. I took about a year and a half to wander the desert and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Ended up working out of a family office venture capital firm on 60th and Madison in New York. And I remember thinking, you know what? I don't really have a lot of good ideas. So I'm going to just go start a reincarnated version of, of spin back because we sold really early. We had a vision we didn't fully execute again. So I went back and reconnected with all of my old customers, um, QVC included. And when I told them about this new SaaS idea I had, they were like, that's amazing. We're in. We'd love to be a beta customer. And then they go, but Dan, by the way, can we get your thoughts on a strategic initiative that we have? I said, sure, you're the third largest retailer in the world. I'd love to hear about your strategic initiative that supports your 10 billion a year revenue business. This is QVC. This is QVC, that's right. And what they told me was both fascinating and obvious. And what they told me was that the world was changing, surprise, surprise, moving away from traditional media like television, radio, and print to digital media. And in the case of QVC that had, quote, finite shelf space with 24-7, 365, 364 days a year, minus Christmas, that was the shelf space that was finite. But on the internet, they had infinite theoretical shelf space. Problem is they never launched a brand digitally. It was not in their model. And they knew that I had experience with that. And I said, well, what do you think about launching brands digitally? Is that um, interesting. Does that make sense to you? Because you've had you all this experience with brands like L'Occitane and with the, the software company, you'd sort of been on the inside, sort of learning about what works, influencer, digital. So you're kind of becoming this expert in in brand launch and marketing. Yeah, totally. And, <laughs> uh, totally. Expert in what worked and what didn't as a result of working across all of these brands with Spinback and Buddy Media. Um, and at the time, even with Buddy Media, to give you more context, I think we had, we were also working with eight or nine of the 10 Fortune 100 companies in the world with uh, and for their social media strategy. So I had this really unique 
perspective on the ecosystem when it wasn't even really mature and helped actually invent um, this idea of attribution and measurement around revenue against what we now know and call things like influencer marketing and, and social media. So that perspective gave me the point of view that was like, you know what, I think I could help you. Problem is, I don't know anything about beauty, but I know digital pretty well. I know your business pretty well because they were a customer. So I was working very closely with their digital team over the over several years. And so after that meeting, I came back to this family office on 60th and Madison. And one of the people that was also working out of that office doing his own private equity investing, um, he was doing his private equity investing on his own because he helped start and co-found a company called Bobby Brown Cosmetics. So as a function of literally working out of an office with this person, we became friendly. I got to hear his story and the early beginnings of how Bobby Brown started. And he got to hear kind of my background with um, the, the businesses that I was running. And when I told him about this opportunity, he was intrigued. He says, it sounds pretty familiar and similar to how we started Bobby Brown um, with a motivated retailer. And, for a bunch of reasons, I was pretty enthused about what could be a really unique opportunity. And so we ended up getting lunch with more folks at uh, QVC. Fast forward, that lunch became several meetings later with, with them and others. And we realized that we had a unique opportunity to launch a digitally native uh, beauty company, which by the way, as, as a backdrop, beauty was one of the fastest growing categories at that period of time, 2013 and 14. So I'm like, third largest retail in the world motivated to make this successful i knew digital pretty well i knew that retailer quite well i had a beauty expert i'm like you know what forget software i'm gonna go try this new category because it's interesting kind of the stars are aligning dan one thing so, i gotta ask you because i maybe it's my old oldness <laughs> if that's a word i'm thinking of qvc and i think it's like where people from oklahoma buy their like like pancake irons <laughs> and where you like, I think of it as this like old late night TV stuff of like unused inventory. Where am I getting my impression wrong? Like what is QVC today and how is it different than the way I'm thinking of it? That's, I would say that's not a totally inaccurate stereotype of, of the brand. But the thing that I saw that was really intriguing to me is I remember one day years ago at buddy media where uh, so what did our product do? Literally, we had analytics that showed revenue in real time based on how things were being shared and talked about on social media. And I remember one day I got frantic emails and messages from people at the company because they thought our product was broken. Why did they think it was broken? Well, for our customer, there was a huge spike in sales and that product was never on air that day. And I was like, well, that's strange. And I understand why people are concerned because their model is really one where sales are driven when products go on air. But here, those products were not on air. And yet there was like a massive, massive spike in sales. And so I dug into it and it turns out that at the bottom of some product detail page buried in some boring forum section, there was a person that had wrote a blog post about a product that she loved with a link to that product that was our link. And that one buried and not so boring blog post drove an exceptional amount of sales. And so that told me that, you know, yes, in the case of QVC, while it's known for at home on air shopping, they've also subsequently acquired a company called HSN down in Florida that does something similar. Really what they're 
what they're amazing at is a platform for people to talk about products live, but also talk about products asynchronously online and in their community. And so that really, to me, suggested that this idea of word of mouth marketing, if done correctly at scale with the right mediums, is the most powerful way to tell stories and sell products in the world. But why do you need QVC? Like if, if you're not going to use their TV, like the internet's infinite, like what, what is the QVC brand add to reach, any of this? Re- reach and distribution. I don't know their number, but as the third largest retailer in the world, the amount of households that they touch via television and also email addresses and so on and is, is like massive. Okay, because uh, they've got email on their past customers and they launched stuff. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so you've got, let me get, let's get back in the story. So we've got Ken who knows beauty through this Bobby Brown experience. Am I getting that right, Bobby Brown? Yep. I should also add not only Bobby Brown, but he was also um, before that CEO of a publicly traded fashion house called Benetton Cosmetics. So he also had the perspective of luxury goods and consumer packaged goods in general. Um, Plus his background is accounting. My background is electrical engineering. He's a bit older than me. I'm a bit younger. So there was a really, and still is a very complimentary partnership and skill set. Cool. So you got, you got Ken who knows beauty. You got QVC who wants to go more digitally native and, and launch brands. You've got obviously a ton of experience with brands. And so where does it go from there? Yeah, great question. So we both realized we had everything you said lined up. Problem is we didn't have a name or an idea. We had really no of the most, we, we didn't have the most important ingredient, which is what is the thing that we're going to make? And where's the authenticity and credibility? We need help there. And so we knew we needed and wanted somebody that could provide that credibility, authenticity, ideally some clinical perspective, maybe even medical perspective, maybe even um, media experience, because we felt that at some point we would probably go on television as well. Um, so we started to look for who this person is. We wanted somebody that would be our customer ideally a mom, maybe with uh, one or two kids. So we started to flush out who is the dream person that we would love to work with. And we started to look for this person. I would come home night after night for weeks, having this discussion with my wife about we're kind of getting nowhere because we didn't have that third leg of the stool that we needed. And, And then I get an email from her with a link and the link is a video clip. The video clip is Dr. Roshini Raj on a television show. I forget which one. I think it was like the Bethany Frankel show. And I remember watching this clip thinking, she's perfect. I have to meet her. So I email her cold. Um, She responds. I tell her a little bit about me and what I'm thinking about. Email becomes phone call. Phone call becomes in-person meeting. And within a week, we were shaking hands agreeing to sign up as uh, kind of equal co-founders and partners to go run up this opportunity. When you say equal co-founders, are you talking about splitting the equity a third, a third, a third, you, Ken, and, and, and Rashini? Yeah, that's right. Got yeah, it. We Got it. And, you know, look, it just for me, for what it's worth, whenever I do these things, it's important that everyone feels good and excited and motivated. I'd rather have a, a 1% of something than 100% of nothing. So... We all signed up to go attack this opportunity, and now we needed a name and an idea. And in one of the following meetings in the following week or two, I remember Roshini came into the office with um, some ideas, 
And one of those ideas and questions was, hey, have you guys looked at probiotics? And we're like, for skincare? And she said, yes. In fact, I've noticed that a lot of my patients that come in that take probiotics also have pretty clear and glowing and healthy skin. And by the way, and she pulls out a report from her bag at that point in time, the American Academy of Dermatology had declared probiotics to be a beauty breakthrough. Why is this? Well, someone had this idea and looked into this idea, which is we know probiotics to be good for our gut, which is an organ in our body. It turns out our skin is also an organ on our body. In fact, it's the largest organ in and on our body. And so people made that relationship, did their homework, and it turned out that probiotics actually have a positive effect on, on skin with things like uh, rosacea, anti-acne, et cetera, et cetera. So went deep down this rabbit hole and got really, really excited about this opportunity to be effectively the world's first and leading brand to, to uh, provide innovation in this category. And we were sold. We went in and then from there we're like, great, what are we going to call this thing? Roshini came back with a list of maybe half a dozen to a dozen names. And sure enough, on the list was Tula, the Sanskrit word for balance, balance and on the inside and out, healthy living on the inside and out. And, and Tula was born. Dan, I want to ask you about protecting the formula. So, you know, Dr. Roshini had this idea that combining skincare with probiotics could have this excellent outcome for people who used the um, applications, so to speak. How did you go about protecting the formula so that other people couldn't knock it off? In the, it's a great question. In, in the case of beauty and even to a degree fashion, people often try to copy one another, um, whether or not things are protected or not. In our case, we did, we did pursue your classic trademark protections and um, patent protections. But um, nevertheless, if you look at, let's use skincare as an example, there's like a million and one brands and products out there, many of which all kind of look and feel the same. So for us, while IP was important, actually it was not as important as most people think it is. What was more important was that the products were great, clean and effective, that the customers loved them, and that we were able to tell our story in a meaningful way that could break through the noise and achieve scale. Because we believe that if we could do that, then ultimately that is what the thing that is the thing that strategic acquires care most about. Probably care less about IP with no distribution and no awareness, probably care more about brands that have broken through the noise and achieved scale. So that's where we spent our time and energy and pretty massively de-emphasized the IP side of things, at least in the beginning. So where does it go from there? So, so it's you, Ken Rashini, you've got an idea. Rashini brings, uh, Dr. Rashini brings the, um, uh, and just for, for you and I, what, what would I appropriately refer, would I refer to her as Dr. Raj, Dr. Rashini? What's the, what's, what does she like to be called? Yeah, Dr. Raj is fine. Dr. Raj, okay. So you, Dr. Raj and Ken are, you've got the, the plan in place, uh, you, you, at least the skeleton of it. Where does it go from there? At some point I'm imagining you've got to kick in some cash and start to build out this thing. What, what was that like? Yeah, totally. So what did we need? We needed a make products. We identified four products, five SKUs that we were going to start with. 
so certainly you need cash to make that product. Um, we were going to need supporting infrastructure, things like uh, accounting help. We were going to need demand planning and inventory management help. We were going to need social media management, coordination, content creation help, web development help. So all of these things we were going to need to start up the company. And so you touch on this, but yeah, exactly right. Me and Ken and Roshini as the founders, we all put in some of our own cash. What we felt we needed to get this thing off the ground to cover everything I just said. Um, we quickly realized we needed a little bit more. So we ended up putting in more than we thought we were planning to originally. And, um, and we got to work. And so I built the original website. I was the one coordinating with a lot of our outsourced manufacturing partners. We'd go to the meetings together to do product development. Uh, so true, like founder CEO type work, lifting up all the heavy rocks and doing the grunt work, handwriting, shipping labels to send lab samples out to mommy bloggers to get their feedback and input from customers and so on. So just kind of got into it quickly. Um, and um, we got the products done and created. We picked a launch date with QVC and and we kind of went live. Our products became available for sale on some date. I don't remember the date on QVC.com. Wait, I, help me understand the QVC. So I'm, I've got Ken, uh, Dr. Raj, and Dan. Yep. I understand that trifecta. Then when you say go live on QVC, and again, this, this is just my naivete about QVC, they were going to take a portion of revenue. Did they have equity or was it just sort of a rev share deal with QVC? No, or think about QVC as like an Amazon, right? They were okay. an online third-party retailer where we were selling our products exclusively for the first year. So if you wanted to go buy our products and you came to our website, at the time it was not even Tula.com, it was Tula4life.com because Tula.com was taken. You would come to the website, very crappy website that I built, and you'd click buy products and you'd get redirected to qvc.com and you'd see our products available for sale. So that was the case for the first year we were in business. And part of why I like that was because I didn't need to stand up my own e-com fulfillment logistics infrastructure. I was just piggybacking off of QVC. Instead, that gave me the opportunity to focus on product development, marketing, refining the story, refining the product. At which point, a year later, we turned on and I turned on our own e-com site where people could come to Tula.com and start to buy products directly from our website or still QVC.com. Okay. And so, again, the, the economics of the QVC relationship would be, uh, you know, you can use our, you can leverage our marketing channel, you can leverage our logistics and payment infrastructure, and for that, you're going to pay us a percentage of sales is it like a rev share or how does that, how does the, the economics work? It's a I don't remember the number specifically, but it's a traditional wholesale relationship. Any wholesaler retailer where a brand is sold, if you go to target or Walmart um, and you see the products, when you buy the products, the retailer gets a percentage and then ultimately the brand gets a percentage as well. So really the same model here as well. What were your thoughts around the QVC brand? So again, this is my opinion of QVC, and I'm sure it's it's horribly dated, but my impression is kind of middle America, not necessarily a luxury brand. It's certainly not Madison or Manhattan sort of. Uh, were you worried that tying your your wagon, if you will, to QVC exclusively for the first year 
would would sully or lessen the the brand at all? Like, did did that like play into any of the conversations you were having? It definitely played into conversations we were having. In fact, when we decided that things were working and we needed to and wanted to raise more money from outside investors, people passed on investing for that reason. They felt like it wasn't being associated with QVC was not as cool or hip as some of these newer modern brands. In my case, though, I felt like it. Uh, I'm an ultimate contrarian. And so I actually liked their customer demographic at the time. I liked that we weren't focused on the classic coasts. And I also like that having um, this motivated partner where I kind of knew the guts of the business and I knew a lot of the levers to pull on. I felt like it would be a great way to launch in a way that was de-risked. And if we got it right, in the best case, we'd have a long-term efficient revenue channel. And at worst, we'd have a channel that at least would provide a subsidy to basically underwrite and fund the initial portion of the business. But I'm glad you raised that question because it's a bit of a foreshadow to what happened next. If we fast forward a few years, what we quickly realized is our customer segment was bifurcating. We had a customer demographic at Tula.com that looked very different than the customer demographic at QVC. And we had to make a choice. Um, and the decision we made was to focus more on our own and operated channels. And so we started to throttle energy, time, and money more into our own channel, Tula.com, and sort of de-emphasize a little bit the partnership with uh, QVC. Um, and that proved to be a really, really great decision. Now, would we have done that at the onset? Maybe could have, would have showed up, but I don't think we would have started Tula at all if not for the amazing partnership we had with with QVC at the onset. But sure enough, we ended up focusing elsewhere. And I think, by the way, that idea of like pivoting and, and refocusing is going to be true of any business. This was just our specific case building Tula. Yeah, for sure. And tell me about the cash. So I'm assuming you're outsourcing the manufacturing of the products third party. So like, I'm trying to think of how the cash would work in that first year. So somebody whips out their credit card and says, yes, I'd like a bottle. QVC uh, swipes the card. How far after they swipe the card do you get your cut into your coffers to enable you to pay the manufacturer that's making the, I'm just trying to visualize the cash moving through the, the system. Yeah. But, well, the way it works is in the case of most retail is they'll give you uh, like a purchase order for uh, in volume of products. So it's not each and every customer they're, they're managing. It's like I'm making up numbers. They want a million dollars worth of product. We'll give you a purchase order. You allocate or ship a million dollars of product to said retailer. And, and now they have it at their fulfillment center, ready to go and be, and, and to be sold to their customer. And the, when they make that purchase from, from you, the brand, they're purchasing at, purchasing at a discount relative to the retail price. Of course, yeah. So, right, easy math. If I'm making a product for $1 and I'm selling it for 10, retailers will buy it at four, five, six, seven dollars $7, depending, and then they'll sell it for that 10. And that's where they, they, make, they make their margin. And us as the brand will make our margin from the spread between the cost of goods at the $1 to the three or four or five that the retailer is buying it for. And again, I'm just making up these numbers. Sure. And we and, can stay in hypothetical land for this 
purpose, but if we get a PO from QVC for a million dollars, let's say, and they're like, okay, we want a million dollars of product. You've got to manufacture a million dollars of product and ship it to QVC. That's so right. That costs money. The PO, I'm assuming, is just a PO. They pay in 30, 60, 90 days, I'm assuming. Like they wouldn't pay up front, I'm assuming. I don't remember the terms of them, but all of the those terms exist. Typically, it's, yeah, 30, 60, 90 days. Some retailers have consignment terms. Some will pay up front. All of it, some of it, it totally varies depending on the partner and stage at which you are at in that partnership. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is this, this sounds like an expensive business, not expensive in the sense that there's some very, very healthy margins, I'm sure. But I'm thinking just from a cash perspective, it sounds expensive because you're getting a PO, but not the cash. Then you're having to manufacture the stuff. I'm, I'm assuming as a new, you, you know, they're not giving you all that on spec. You've got to put some money down with the manufacturer. Like, how are you financing this growth as it goes beyond the ideas phase and into like scaled manufacturing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it gets, in the case of consumer packaged goods, physical products, uh, it can get expensive quickly. And it's not, it's, it's not that it's expensive. It's you just have real cash needs because you're making physical things and you need to make those physical things ahead of you selling those things. Unlike, whereas in software, and I come out of software as well, the, the, there are no physical things. The things you're making are ones and zeros. It's, it, the only cost is the hum, really mostly the human capital, the people making those uh, ones and zeros make any sense. So for, for Tula, we, as I mentioned before, the, the founders, myself, Ken and Roshini, we all put in some cash and the cash we needed was to make product among those other things, web development and some infrastructure. And then once we realized things are working, we're like, oh, wait a minute, we need to make more product to sell more to customers. And so we needed more cash. So we put in more money. And then it got to a point where quickly we realized the cash needs were going to be greater than any one of us wanted to continue to pony up. And so we decided to raise some outside capital. We raised money from in an angel round, uh, friends and family round, literally, literally friends and family, like my brother, my sister, my parents, my partner's niece and nephew and friends and mentors, advisors. That's hardcore. Were you worried about like stiffing your brother? No, because we also gave those early investors a really great, great deal. How, um, how do you define a great deal? Like what was the valuation? How did you, how did you think about the valuation? So we, we let them invest at a $3 million cap in the, in the beginning, which Explain is. Explain that for people who don't know what you mean by a cap of $3 million. Yeah. So often what happens in the case of early stage investing and in startup, when people raise money, they'll raise money on what are called convertible notes or uh, safes. Um, I forgot what safes stand for, but, but basically it's effectively a loan to the company. And the loan can convert into equity at a future date. That future date is often tied to a future round of financing. When an institutional investor comes in and says, we're going to give you a big chunk of cash, at that point, the loan converts to equity. So it's just a really easy way to let friends and family invest in the early stages. And so what the cap means is that under no terms will the value of the company be worth more than $3 million. And so for easy math, if a cap or safe cap is $3 million and somebody invests $300,000, then they're effectively with some nuance, getting about 10% of the company. Um, 
So that was a really, really favorable set of terms for for the company at that stage, or really any company in any stage these days. If you go into seed stage investing land, um, which is a world that I, I still live in, people raise money on ideas alone with nothing at 10 million, 20 million, $30 million valuations. Granted, in this market, I think that's changing, but nevertheless, those were the terms that our friends and friends and family got to invest uh, invest on. And and to your point on sniffing them, part of why I didn't mind it was because, again, these are literally friends and families. So worst case scenario, which is the best case scenario, the brand does really, really well, and they make maybe an outsized return relative to maybe other deals. It's fine with me. Right? It's like my brother, my sister, my family, my friends, my partners, um, significant others and, and relatives. That is totally fine with me. It turns out at exit, that worked out really, really well for everybody. And, and so th- that makes me happy. Um, and if it didn't work out, well, at least I would have gone to sleep at bed knowing that I gave them a good deal and at least made it uh, interesting and worth their while. How did Dr. Raj, because again, I know what medical bills cost. And I, I, I've, I've seen uh, some of Dr. Raj's videos. And I know she's r- relatively young, so I'm, I'm guessing she was early stage in her, her, you know, earning power at this stage in her career. Like, how did she feel about the $3 million cap? I'm, because that would affect her as well, while you've got obviously an exit behind you and, and weren't maybe necessarily as dependent on the money or the big win. I'm guessing this would have been her first huge win. Did she, did she push back at all with a $3 million cap? Well, it's a good question. So just remember the $3 million cap was for outside capital that we brought in from friends and family. In the case of me, Ken and Roshini, we put in our, we put in, cash at, as founder capital, which um, was not on any cap. It was a third, a third, a third, whatever money we put in just is part of the deal we agreed to, which entitles us to the third, a third, a third. So um, so there was no pushback from anybody. I think we all felt that the deal for us as founders was right and fair. You know, how could you argue with an unequal partnership at that stage? And we also felt that especially given my experience and Ken's experience doing early stage investing, that the term of that cap was very fair and very below market relative to everything else that was happening at the time. So all in all, we felt like it was just a a great, great deal. It was um, not risk-free, but on a risk-free adjusted basis, it made sense. So all in all, we felt like it was a win-win for us and the people investing at that stage in the best case or worst case. So where does it go from there? You've got three million bucks in the bank, or not three million bucks, but you've got a, ra- a round of friends and family uh, to 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 continue to find, feed the coffers. What 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 are the next steps in the story? We 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 just keep going to work. We show up every day. I'm full time now, basically running this thing. We're beginning to hire a few people. At that point, we realized things were going pretty well, and I needed to hire real really great people full time to help me run this thing day to day. And so I ended up realizing that I needed and wanted, wanted wanting somebody that looked and felt a bit like a partner to me full time. Uh, Dr. Raj had a medical practice. Ken was still doing investing, but certainly helping what felt like full time, but was not. And so needed help. And I got connected to through a mutual friend, 
to somebody that was also looking at retail and QVC. And when I told her about what we were doing, she got very intrigued. Fast forward a little bit, we hit it off. I ended up bringing on uh, our first real kind of full-time corporate hire of sorts. Her name was Julia Strauss, and she helped build the business with me. Um, fast forward a little bit, we hired a few more people, and to her credit, she hired a few great, great people. And right around that time, and I don't remember which came first, but realized two things. One, it was working. We needed even more capital to really step on the gas. Um, and two, I remember I was in a product development meeting with about seven or eight lab samples on the table, deciding if we wanted things like citrus or lavender in the products. And I remember thinking, what the hell am I doing in this room? And what the hell am I doing with my life? Like, how did I get to this moment that I'm running a basically a woman's skincare company? You know, like I grew up building computers um, and building robots. Like I was passionate about technology. Ball, Here ball, I was. What revenue are you at at this point in the in the stage? We were probably less than ten million in revenue, um, and so we knew that we needed a step on the gas. And I knew that I was not passionate about the day-to-day, at least part of the day-to-day and specifically product development. I was passionate about the business building, but not that piece. And for any company to be successful, the product has to be amazing and there has to be a really tight connection between product product marketing, customer journey, and the customer. I was not the customer. Julia was. So I remember telling Julia that, look, you should do a good job because if you do a good job, I'll give you mine and I'm going to fire myself and I'm going to go back to technology and try to do the software thing again. And that's exactly what happened. I, I fired myself. I went to start a software company, which was a company called Troops, which ultimately sold to Salesforce. And also at the time we needed cash. So we ended up doing a round of financing with a private equity firm, Al Catterton, who is, I think, considered one of the, if not the best consumer uh, private equity firm in the world. And so they got involved. And that's when we really stepped on the gas and built out even a bigger and more expansive team. Was the private equity like a majority recapitalization or was it more of a growth round? Like what, how, how did they structure that deal? Yeah, more like a growth round of financing. Okay. Not majority ownership. They just came in with a check and became our partner. And we how kept did, building the business. How did they value it? Again, you're sort of less than $10 million in revenue. Did, were they thinking like a multiple of revenue at this point or... Yeah, it's funny. When it comes to venture capital or private equity and all of these negotiations, they're all, those term sheets and valuation are all underwritten by some, uh, probably some revenue multiple to start. And then factors in some strategic value that is completely unknown and then immediately divorces revenue multiple away from reality. And so it just becomes a, a game of what the buyers and sellers both think it's worth with like kind of a finger in the air and then what both parties agree on. And so that was the case with Al Catterton. It was the case with pretty much every business I've been a part of. But this is where the friends and family equity or, or uh, uh, investment converts into because it's the exactly. institutional investment, right? That's right. Yeah. So when they, when they, wrote a check and put their money in the business that triggered this conversion event for those early friends and family convertible note holders. And the day 
Al Catterton invested is the same day that my brother called me excitingly because now he was officially an equity shareholder in Tula. Yeah. And there was some professional money at the uh, table. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and, um, we had planned to, and always knew we were going to, if things had gone well to go into retail, um, Ulta Sephora, we ended up going to Ulta and we always knew that if we were going to do that properly, we needed to your point earlier, we just needed more cash. We needed resources to hire people to help put products in store and staff the store and make sure the people in the store knew about the products and speak to it effectively. So we needed to make real and meaningful investments in that channel. And that required significant cash that we needed a significant capital partner for. And so that's part of the reason we decided to partner with Al Catterton. How much did you raise? I don't remember. It's probably public somewhere, I think, but I don't, I don't remember. It wasn't a lot. I had 12.2 somewhere, 12.2 million. Does that sound right? Or is that? It's probably my guess in the ballpark. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, so you get a truckload of money to build this business. Julie is doing a great job. What happens next? Things are going great. And then uh, Julia's husband was also an entrepreneur had a had an exit of his own he sold his company to a company in london called deliveroo and turned out that um, he would need to move there for work and very quickly julia found herself running a company based in new york with her husband as a meaningful executive of this fast growing probably i think at the time one of the fast growing companies in europe and so they, they realized they needed to move to London as a family. And so Julia had to give up her CEO job at Tula and move to London. And there we were back to a world where I was de facto CEO again. But at that point in time, I had another job as a founder CEO of a software company, a venture-backed software company called Troops. I say venture-backed because I committed to my investors from Troops that this is my full-time job and I had another CEO at Tula. And so now I did not have a CEO at Tula. So that was a bit of a panic mode for me personally. I remember when Julia shared the news, I didn't sleep at all that night. I was up at like four o'clock in the morning, waiting to go to the gym, which didn't open till five. By the way, I'm not a morning gym person anyway. Just, (laughs) and, you know, I freaked out a little bit. And I remember after the gym session, I was totally at peace. And the reason I was at peace is I realized simply, I found someone amazing like Julia. I'll find someone amazing to take that role. And so I went on a search to find that person. At that point, Al Catterton was able to help stand up a bit of a recruiting engine and and, and workflow to vet, vet the process. But I ended up, long story short, finding this amazing uh, partner and now friend, Savannah Sachs, who became the CEO of Tula and she is still the CEO of Tula now as part of Procter and Gamble, but she came in and helped take what we had done and what Julia had done and even bring it to a whole nother level and help kind of spearhead the rollout with retail, help spearhead the international planning and rollout uh, and certainly help spearhead the merger that we did with Procter and Gamble and acquisition. So let's talk about that. So what was the trigger that, made you, I guess, and Savannah and Ken, 
and Dr. Raj think that now was the time to to kind of do a merger with a big corporate like PNG? Like, was there a triggering event or some sort of straw that broke the camel's back? So the business was an incredible business. We, I know me and Ken ad nauseum debated, should we sell? Should we not sell? Should we go public? Should we buy other companies and do a roll up? When you say incredible, with- like, what, give me a sense of like, why, why did you consider it like the growth rate was incredible or the margins or like, just give me a sense of why you thought it was great. Yeah. If you run down the list of things that are important to a brand, um, things like founder story, things like margin profile, things like net promoter score, customer feedback on the products, um, things like social media engagement, things like return on ad spend or ROAS marketing efficiency. Like if you work through all of the metrics and things that matter in a business like this, when you looked at our business, we were best in class for every single one of those things. When you benchmark us versus the competitive set, literally across the board, growth rate, how quickly we were growing relative to our peer set. We had an amazing team. Um, So we're like, this is a really, really special company. And Ken would use the words often and so does catching lightning in a bottle. We felt like we caught lightning in a bottle. And when you have that, as someone that studied people like Warren Buffett their whole life, I realized that if you have a great company like that, you hold on for dear life. Um, that's why Berkshire has become Berkshire. But but in our case, as you mentioned earlier, still relatively early in my career, Roshini uh, was also just getting started in her own commercial endeavors outside the medical world. Um, Ken had put a more of a private equity hat on. And certainly when we brought in El Catterton, their whole business model, and, and not just them specifically, but private equity and venture capital, is to invest and then return capital back to their investors. So all of these firms, not all, many of these firms, most of the firms have a time horizon in which they must harvest the investment and, and give it back to their investors. So when you add up all of those pieces, we kind of signed up for an exit and liquidity event at some point whether that was a private sale to a company like a Procter & Gamble or a public sale to retailers, which we, net, which we know as uh, an IPO, um, which is really just at a public sale of the company, both our sales. And so we knew that we were going to more likely than not sell the company. And then the question was really when. And we also believe that in the category of beauty, and also I would say generally in the category of physical products or consumer consumer packaged good, goods, there becomes a point at which you get maybe too expensive, right? Like you've done too well, where it'd have to be an insanely large check. And we wanted to make sure that we were big enough that we can get the outcome we wanted, but not too, too big that we would have no choice but to go public because it would just be too hard for any one company to swallow. What was the outcome you wanted? We wanted roughly the outcome that we got, which is, I I can't talk specific numbers, but we felt like there was a number that we thought we can clear. And if we can clear it, that would be a home run. And we, we cleared that number. And when you say home run, I'm trying to unpack it. I realize, and I can't, I appreciate we can't talk about the actual sale price, but I think entrepreneurs listening to this would be, uh, really well served to understand how you thought about what a home run would be. Um, some people I think think of it as like, I need this much to retire or I need this much to go start another business or I need this much cause I want to feel like I, 
you know, I, I did well, I won the negotiation. Like, can you just take me through you, Dr. Raj, Ken, how you thought about what a home run would be? Like, what's the math you're doing and, and why you determined not to be a home run? So, yeah. So if you were, if you recall, when we let our friends and family invest at the three million cap, part of why we did that is I thought, with a greater than fifty percent chance, this thing was going to fail. Like, who am I to be building beauty? All the questions you raised and concerns around QVC were real, and ones I had been thinking about. So, in my mind, when we got even to five million in sales, I was like, "This is amazing!" Right? I never thought we'd get to even a million in sales, and when we got to one and then five, like every month we did better than last and it was it was it was great so even at the earliest stages to me it was it was a win and so when i say home run what i mean is i think about um, just in absolute terms um, companies that sell for in the you know single digit millions tens of millions hundreds of millions billions uh you know in my mind um kind of that third fourth bucket those are however you slice them home runs especially if um, the founders have a meaningful equity position that can change their life what does change their life mean to me it means i don't need to worry about as much paying bills my home taking care of my kids sending them to school um, not stressing about those things not having to worry or stress about um, finances for things like vacation or going out to dinner to me, that's a home run. Um, and so we check that box and more. The other way I would characterize a home run is when you think about some of the most iconic companies in the world, Procter & Gamble is one of them. So to think about building from scratch a brand that is now part of the Procter & Gamble family, that is to me one of the most iconic companies in the world, that is really special. And there's something enduring there that I can be proud of. And so when I walk into a, an Ulta or Sephora with my daughter or Spore, my son, they can see these products on shelves and I can say, this is something that I helped start. That's, that's special. And hopefully will be some semblance of ignition in their entrepreneurial career and journey. So that's what I mean by home run. Awesome. Take me through the deal itself. So I'm assuming you shopped it to the big CPG companies. By the way, one other thing I'll add on when that's probably the most important. Um, not only did it do those things for me personally, more importantly is it changed the lives and career trajectory of literally everybody at the company. As a result of the success, all of the people at Tula also got um, some ca some cash that could make their life better, but also now they have the opportunity to go pursue an amazing career as a result of the experience they had at Tula. They got to see a high growth playbook, see it firsthand, be part of that, uh, which will pay dividends for anything that they do forward. So anyway, that I think is of everything the most important. Yeah, well said indeed. And again, they, they will, uh, the limiter on their careers has just gone up a hundredfold with profit exactly. and global exposure and, and all that, that P&G has to offer. Talk me through the, the transaction itself. Again, these types of deals, as I understand them, there's call it a dozen Mars, Unilever, Procter Gamble, it's probably a dozen big enough, pro, you know, CPG consumer packaged goods companies that could 
buy a business of that size. And and it, I don't I don't think you can confirm or deny, but I've I've got written here somewhere that sales were around 150 million at the end of 2021. Again, doesn't really matter, but it was a it was a significant size company at this at this stage. And so there's this smallish number of CPG companies that could acquire a business of that size. I'm assuming you shopped it to all of them. Like, what was that experience like? Yeah, so this is public information, but we worked with an advisor uh, called Financo, now part of Raymond James, to help us manage this whole process. Um, for, for my other company, Troops, that we sold to Salesforce, when I was looking at it, help for that process, someone put it to me really well that stuck with me. And he goes, you know, advisors for M&A, and granted, I'd been through an acquisition before, so I'd, I'd seen this from the inside and done it myself. But he said, look, advisors here are, are people that have kind of been down the river, in the riverboat hundreds of times. They know where every rock is and every pebble and every break. And so, yeah, you can do it on your own. You've certainly been down the river before, but like we could help you manage that more effectively. And so I think that was true here. And so what we decided to do was, given how healthy the business was um, and how much the business, how much demand we thought there would be for that business, we thought, let's hire an advisor and let's run a process and let everybody know that we will be selling the company. And if you're interested to let us know what your interest is and so on. And so that's what we did. And so Financo helped us manage that process and helped us facilitate the conversations with all the good be would be parties that might be interested in acquiring the company and took us through the whole M&A process. We narrowed it down to a handful and uh, eventually selected Procter and Gamble as the, as the final, final home for the brand. Yeah. How many like LOIs, if you can share, did you get? Um, more than I thought we would. Um, probably seven, eight, wow. I would say. Yeah. Wow. And for folks who've never gone through the process, I mean, give them a sense if you can, again, I don't know if you're able to share, but the, the, the range in valuation from low to high did like percentage wise, were they all kind of 10 or 15% plus or minus, or were they huge deltas between the, like the low end and the high end? They were pretty, it was a pretty big, the lowest was low and the highest is high, but there were, they were all over the place. Um, and not only were they all over the place, but there were strategic acquirers that were involved and interested. You named a few of them. There were also high growth private equity firms that were involved that felt to my point earlier that we had a lot more white space and room to grow another five, 10, 20 X from even where we were. And so there are other parties that were interested in going on that journey with us and they were part of the conversations as well. And so when you introduce people like that, then uh, you also not only are dealing with different quantum amounts for the company, but different terms as well for the company. And how did you think about the terms that were most important to you? Again, the, the big ones that we talk about on this show all the time are obviously cash up front, uh, your shares in the, in the acquiring company, earnouts, vendor take back. Like what were the, the terms that were, and again, at this, at this point, uh, you've also got Savannah as the CEO. 
I'm assuming they want to lock her up. Like, how did you guys think about the terms that were important to you, Ken, Dr. Raj, Dr. Uh, Raj, excuse me. Yeah. So w without getting into specifics of the deal, what I'll say is for anybody going through an acquisition, I think the things that are perhaps most top of mind for any, anyone selling a company is ultimately the purchase price, right? I, I don't, I don't really care what anybody says. Ultimately, the person with the biggest number is more often than not the the winner. Not all the time, because um, I had done deals in the past where that wasn't the case. But that's certainly a priority and consideration set. Another really important factor is certainly who is the acquirer. In, in, in our case, we wanted to make sure that the brand could continue to thrive and, ex and succeed and accelerate. And who better a company than than someone like Procter Gamble. So the, the party that was doing the deal with us mattered a whole lot. Uh, you mentioned other things like earnout and lockup and so on. Yeah, all of those things are important, but but ultimately the things that were most important to us were, and most sellers I would say, are ultimately the purchase price and who's, who's behind that. Yeah, and again, I know we can't speak specifically about the PNG acquisition, but again, you, you mentioned a range of LOIs. Um, I'm assuming the private equity groups were looking for you to roll some equity into the into a new entity. If if you looked at the other strategic acquirers, were they offering? Uh, was it was it a cash only deal, or were they offering shares in their company? In in most of these growth, these private equity growth rounds, <clears throat> most of the way they're structured is some combination of cash and equity where they provide some liquidity to the founders, take some money off the table for doing the work that got the company to that point. But then also is the case, again, not all the time, but often that these groups want participation, continued participation from those founders that could keep the, the magic that is that brand and keep growing. And so I don't remember the specifics of all deals, but certainly there were some offers that look, looked and felt like the traditional high growth private equity structure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I hope you take this as a compliment because it's intended that way. I looked at uh, the Tula website before this meeting and, and Dr. Raj is there as the founder not the co-founder or, you know, a part of the team. And so eventually it's somewhere along the lines, you know, you, I'm assuming decided that you're okay, uh, not taking the limelight for this company. And it, it seems to be a, a theme or a vein that I've picked up on throughout our conversation. Uh, you know, you were quick to share equity. You were quick to, uh, to give a really favorable term to your friends and family. All these things are, 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 it seems to me, pointing to somebody who um, doesn't need to have the spotlight all the time. Am I picking up on something that, that, that's true? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. It, in my case, when I build these businesses, success for me is, I, I have no ego, I check my ego out the door, but success is really about the we, not the me. And if we win, if we are successful and I can see all the people do amazing things as a result of uh, a small role that I played, that that is massively successful. In the case of Tula also, 
it would have been pretty confusing to tell the market (laughs) a story in which I am a figurehead of this brand. It was much simpler for Roshini to be the figurehead. So I remember even uh, a few years ago, we, or really she, was on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine telling this story. And that, you know, like, and and when you read the articles, surely in the first sentence or two, you hear and see me and my partner, but whatever, it was amazing. I didn't really care so long as we were successful. That ultimately is what, what mattered to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it obviously was a huge, huge win for everybody involved. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Just one or two word answer will do. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Most questionable tactic an investor or acquirer tried to play on you or try to use to get one over on you? Um, one is they, the veil or, or, or threat that they have another company or on the table, right? Like if you don't do this deal with us, we're going to go do this thing over here, whether it's build or buy someone else. Um, and if that's coming from a, bigger company that had the resources and capabilities to do that. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty, pretty spooky place to be in. Very well said. Biggest mistake you made during the process of selling your company. Hmm. Uh, I would say a deal this is true of really any deal, whether it's sales, sale of a product, sale of a company, uh, hiring someone. It is not over till it's over. In the case of acquisitions, the deal's not done until the money hits your bank account. Because I've seen personally up close in my own companies and others I'm investors in far too many times where you think a deal is all but done. And the craziest thing will pop up in the 11th hour that could blow up the entire deal. I've seen that a bunch, pretty much in every deal I've done. I don't think there's been one that hasn't had some issue that was totally unforeseen and unthinkable that's popped up. I think you're foreshadowing my next question, which is what was the lowest emotional ebb you reached in the process of selling your company? (sighs) That probably thinking that, um, this is case, this is the true and really every company that I've sold or been part of there, there's a point at which you think the deal is done and you've done all your work. And then shortly thereafter, something jeopardizes everything. And in that moment, after you've told yourself this story that you've cleared the hardest parts and cleared the hardest hurdles at that moment, that is a really, really low, stressful, depressing place to be because now you're questioning if the thing is going to get done at all. But you just have to persevere and work through it and problem solve and figure it out. What was the highest emotional point you reached in the process of selling? For me, the highest point was after we had done the deal, I looked at all of the people that participated in the transaction, um, how long they'd been at the company for, what they were doing previously, what they might do after. And to just realize that we had built something bigger than any one person that had and would have an impact on many, many people and their families to me was by far the best 
the most rewarding experience. Tell me about explaining to your brother what you sold for and what his shares had become worth. Where were you? What'd you how'd you do it? Well, he he knew because he he had been keeping a spreadsheet of his equity position and every hypothetical under the sun. So he probably knew more what the the value of the shares are worth more than I, even I did, truthfully. So he was he was pumped. He was pumped. Yeah. Where were you when you sold him? Well, so my my brother is also a lawyer by trade. So even as I was working through some of the process and issues, he was a, also a great sounding board for me because at the time he was actually also selling uh, a company that he was a part of, leading point on the M and A acquisition for his company. So we were able to share not war stories, but like battle moments, if you will, along the way. Um, so th- th- there wasn't this pretty big unveiling moment for him, but there was a bigger unveiling moment for other people that weren't as close to, to the situation. And I think in those cases, like everybody was ecstatic that um, we had the outcome that we had and who we had it with. And also when we had it, when we had it, because if you look at the state of the world today, it's a pretty tough place out there for any company today. So I think we, we also got really lucky um, with the growth of the company and the timing of the exit. And, but as I mentioned earlier, I was stoked when we got to a million in sales, right? And so when we ended up at the place where we did, where we were you know, north of, well, north of 100 million in sales with Procter & Gamble, no one had planned for that. We just got incredibly lucky. And so everybody was excited. Awesome. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy to commemorate the win. Um. I can't say that I bought myself a trophy, um, but yeah, no, nothing, no, nothing, nothing, nothing in particular. We uh, we moved out to the burbs from New York City during COVID, so I guess trophies would be anything necessary related to having two kids at home. You know, the necessary car and slightly bigger house. And, things like that. You also got involved in a school. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a great segue. Probably if there was any trophy, that would be it. Yeah. I grew up, uh, my, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So it was important to them and my family for me to grow up with a, a Jewish education. So I went to a Jewish day school called Solomon Schechter and my grandfather having lived through the Holocaust, he did not get to go to school. Neither did my grandmother. So for them forever, education was massively important. This thing that they knew was, was important, but they never, they never got. So I went to school. And so, yeah, after we sold the company, really the first thing I did with my money was give it away. And so I ended up going back to the school that I grew up in and, um, made a, uh, commitment and, and, dedication to that school to build a bigger school and rename it in honor of my grandparents. Uh, so that school, which was once called Solomon Schechter, now called the Hebrew Academy, will now in honor of my grandparents be called the, the Reich Hebrew Academy. So yeah, that is the first thing I did with my money, which was give it away. 
Good for you. What's that feel like? It's the greatest. People, I think all entrepreneurs, not all, but many get caught up with the hustle and the end state, right? It's, it's, it is that dream and vision of selling your company. But I feel like people that are too focused on money are not happy when people are focused on happiness, kind of the rest follows. And for me, helping people both intimately, in my case, I'm a first responder um, as a volunteer, doing things like that and charitable giving. When you compare those moments with even the best that work, they don't compare. Like the, I, personally, I feel way better um, doing those charitable things than the best sale or deal or whatever at a company. Um, but yeah, it's just a special thing. Well, I'm sure people will uh, now know the right name forever, which is uh, which is a fantastic achievement and a great honor to your grandparents. So thank you for sharing that. Where can people get in touch with you? I know they're going to want to reach out on social. Is there a best place for people to say hi and uh, thank you for your insight and wisdom here? Uh, yeah, probably Twitter, I think. I'm just at Dan Reich um, on Twitter or Instagram. That's my handle pretty much everywhere these days. And my website, danreich.com. Awesome. And we'll put all those in the show notes at builttocell.com. Dan, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. And there you have it for today's interview between Dan and John. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then share this podcast out with a friend or colleague. You can actually watch the full interview over at our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. If you haven't done so, it's just a wonderful way to get some of the expressions and it brings something different to the interview. So be sure you head over to our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. If you want to help support the show, you can do so by leaving a rating and review. By heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review, it helps our show grow and get in front of more people just like you. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the article Dan wrote, which I mentioned at the beginning, you can head over to our episode page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Also, if you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the opportunity to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio and video engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts at helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.